Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining us for Redeem Online this week. I want to share a story about 5th and 6th grade Kurt. Now, we had one of the scariest principals that you could ever imagine when I was in 5th and 6th grade. Mr. Veach walked around the school and it was like uh, Harry Potter when Lord Voldemort came into the room. You would see kids like start crying, you would see kids run under their desks and hide. It, it wasn't that bad, but you get the picture of Mr. Veach. He was a no nonsense kind of guy. He was a wear a suit every day. He was a in his office and he was in his office every minute until he wasn't. And when he was out of his office, you knew it was about to go down. Someone was getting in trouble. Now, one of the challenges of a no nonsense principle for a kid like me is that I was kind of a nonsense kid. I liked to get in trouble. I had a hard time kind of towing that line between adorable, funny, charming Kurt and just straight up obnoxious punk if we're being completely honest. And, and so for me, this is something that I've always struggled with, but in fifth and sixth grade, it was at the height of it. Now, Mr. Veach was most known for, or at least in my book he was most known for, for hanging a paddle on his, on his door uh, to remind us of the punishment that we would receive if we went outside of the lines. Now here's the deal. I did not grow up in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in Indiana and things are just a little bit different during that time and over there. I, I think to this day it's still one of the few states that allows corporal punishment. So I did not grow up in the Pacific Northwest. It's just a little bit different. Now you would think that a paddle hanging up would be enough of an intimidation factor for Kurt not to screw up. But there's something amazing about the fifth and sixth grade boy's brain that doesn't really allow us to really think straight and think of all the consequences. And so, you know, I just didn't ever really, uh, wasn't too intimidated by the paddle. But I went and I did a lot of pranks in fifth and sixth grade. And I don't remember exactly what it was. I think it might've been like tying a kid's shoelaces together on the playground. And uh, anyway, me and my friend, we got sent down to Mr. Veach's office. Now you can imagine the feeling that I had as I was walking down to Mr. Veach's office. You know, the best way I can describe it, I was thinking about this, the best way I can describe it is, it's like if you ever had to go get one of those COVID tests, I had to get it like seven or eight times. There's something about the, the, the feeling right before you get a COVID test. You know what I'm talking about. They, they have to stick that stick so far up your nose. You've got this like anxious feeling. you got this like pit of your stomach, like nervousness. And that's how it felt going there. I know that the nurse has to get a little bit from the navel, the top of the nasal cavity. But every time, I promise you, they got a little bit of my brain. If you got a test, you know what I'm talking about. And so I'm walking. I have this stomach ache and I have this panic feeling. And we got to Mr. Veach's office. And I remember this, his first words out of his mouth. His first words are not like, hey, tell me what happened, or hey, explain yourself. He said this, and it gives me cold chills. It said, okay, who am I spanking first? And I remember that so much, the gut, just like, what in the world? This was a no-nonsense kind of principle. Now, one of the things, to just hurry the story up, is that you have to know about me. One of the things that I pride myself in is that even at a young age, I was able to speak my way out of any situation. If you know me, you, you can guess that that's what I used to do. But it's probably not the best thing for a pastor, but hey, it's something that I always feel pride on, is that I'm able to speak my way out 
of any situation. So I had talked us down to, I don't know that he ever actually spanked anyone, but I was able to talk our way into just a simple detention. Now, on reflecting about my life, and I've been reflecting a lot about my life lately, I've been thinking about negative and, and good situations that I faced with. I actually thought about Mr. Beach just the other day, and I thought, what did he teach me? And, and the words that came to mind were honor and respect. You know, actually at the end of my sixth grade year, I became kind of friends with Mr. Beach. And I, I realized that he had a strong conviction to teach us honor and respect. And as a church, we talk about all the ways that we are supposed to live. Matter of fact, Liz last week shared in Romans 12, she had the list. If you remember, she had the list. It was a list of, I think, 21 things of how we are supposed to live as Christians. If you did not watch that sermon, go back and watch it because it's so good to understand what, how we're supposed to live. In Romans 12, Paul went and he's beginning by calling us to a life of living as a living sacrifice. And to do that, we're supposed to live a certain way. And so we see this. We talk about the fruits of the Spirit so often in this church, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that we, the ways that we are supposed to live. But what we find is that honor and respect are also clear values on the ways that we are supposed to live as living sacrifices. We see this throughout our families, throughout our communities, throughout our churches. We have lost honor and respect within these cultures. So what does it look like when we lose in our culture honor and respect? You know, we can lose the importance of an individual building and maintaining a good reputation. This is so critical. How many people right now are thinking, how do I have a good reputation? How do I live in a way that, that requires honor and respect from other people? We can lose the respect for groups and communities that we belong to. You know, there's a bank in town. I'm not going to name the bank, but there's a bank in town and their grass is filled with dandelions and their grass is like up above their ankles. Growing up, banks were like the thing that like kept all their yard work perfect. What does it mean that a corporation comes in and they don't like keep they don't keep things up to up to uh, up to looking pristine? What does it do to a community when we see that? Right, we're moving into a world where we just don't even think about the the communities that we belong to. We begin to lose community when it becomes a free for all for all of us, and we lose mentorship. We lose this ability to re to feed into each other's lives on a multi-generational way and to raise people up in honor and respect and for the young generation to understand what honor and respect even is. These are all things that I believe are worth fighting for. And we can lose beauty and order of gender roles and family institutions. And we see this, that throughout scripture, there are hierarchical systems that God has ordained and set up throughout scripture. You know, there's spiritual hierarchy of systems, right? We know this. You have the Godhead. You have God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Then you have seraphim and cherubim. And then you have the archangels and the angel. And then you have man. There's a natural system to these things. And of course, you have human hierarchy, right? There's a great line in the office when Michael and Jim become co-managers. If you ever watched The Office, and I remember one of the people from The Office, they say this. They say, 
It doesn't take a genius to know that all organizations thrive and survive with two bosses, two leaders. Who doesn't want two bosses in their life? What country isn't run with two presidents, right? We know that there's just hierarchy and there's structure that God put in place to have people lead, right? But it takes honor and respect. Honor and respect are critical throughout the Bible. But what happens when we lose all order? Look outside, right? We're beginning to see what it looks like. Talk to a teacher nowadays. Hear how hard their life is. Talk to somebody in the service industry and hear how hard their life is. They will tell you what is happening. And of course, throughout the Bible, we are first and foremost told to honor the Lord our God. This is the foundation of everything. For the believer, this is the foundation for every way that we are to live, is to honor the Lord our God with everything. Romans 12, Liz talked about it yesterday. It's called being a living sacrifice, to honor ourselves, honor the Lord through being a living sacrifice. But we see multiple places that we are told on how to live a life of respect and honor to one another as well. 1 Timothy 5.17, let's start there. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work is preaching and teaching. Well, that's kind of weird that I started with that one, but let, let's dig into that one, right? Sorry about that, but take me out of this. I am an elder and I'm a teacher in this church. Take me out of this. But just think about John and Mark and Tony. These are elders who teach us, who who, who lay down their lives, their money, their free time, their pride, everything for the affairs of what? For the affairs of the church of Jesus Christ. And so there's honor in that. It says that, right? They're worthy of honor. And actually, if I reread it, it's double honor. I could have looked up some commentaries or something. I have no idea what double honor means, but let's start here. Maybe you could begin by thanking me twice for everything. <laughs> that would be a good, that's maybe double honor. So every time, maybe it's, thank you, Kurt. Thank you, Kurt. That's totally fine. But no, this is serious stuff. This is, this is really, we, we have the spiritual gift and the responsibility of leadership of the church, of eldership. We teach and therefore we are strictly judged. This is serious stuff. So the Bible is telling us that we're supposed to hold that in, uh, hold that up with honor. We see this. Chapter 19 in Leviticus. So let's jump to Leviticus. Let's spend some time in Leviticus. Expresses principles that extend from the Ten Commandments and so that go further than the Ten Commandments. That's what's happening in Leviticus 19. It's establishing this core morality attached to holiness. And what does it mean for us to be set aside as people of faith, to not be ordinary or common? That's what's happening in Leviticus 19. These passages consist of statements and teachings that begin with commands related to either things that we are to do or things that must be avoided. And so Leviticus 19, 1-3, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. God ordained family. We see this right here. Fathers and mothers are to raise their children in the ways of the Lord in a godly way, teaching them about the Lord and the ways of the Lord. And in return, children are to appreciate and value their father and their mothers. Church, 
one of the greatest threats to society right now, and most of the problems derive from this, I believe, that we need to see, we need to get back to family and honor and respect. When we see a breakdown of family, there's nothing that we can do to really get things back to this honor and respect thing unless it comes down to really having respect and honor within families. Fathers and mothers raising their kids in godly ways. Fathers taking the responsibility seriously of raising your kids in godly ways. And in return, children having honor and respect for their parents. You know, it's, it's funny because as this breaks down, we see that, that there's more emphasis on churches and schools and principals and others and even the government are supposed to raise their kids. But parents, it can start in the church. If you're listening to this, it's time for us to step up in a whole new way, to raise our kids in a godly way. And kids, it's important for us to honor our mothers and our fathers. Leviticus 19.32, another one. Stand up in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly and revere your God. I am the Lord. Parents, young people, everyone, nothing will build up your character and the character of your kids more than this, showing respect and honor for the more mature believers within our body. This is foundational. We are commanded to hold up our elders with esteem and with high regard. My greatest prayer is that we would be a church that is multi-generational. There's tremendous value in us being a church that is multi-generational. We see this. It will change our perspective. It will build up empathy within the next generations. It will build up our character and challenge our assumptions. And it's vital to living in community. I know that I've said this multiple times, but I'm up here largely in part of, I grew up in a church with confirmation. At 13, you go through confirmation classes. And you have a mentor in there. And I had an 89-year-old farmer named Wilbur who took me out every Saturday for breakfast at the Bob Evans. And we talked about life. And it was so foundational to my faith. Honor and respect is foundational to our faith and our walk as believers. And so now we move into Romans. And so we, we, we move into the letter that, that Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And you have to remember what is happening to really lay the foundations on this. We see that Paul is laying out an argument to unify Jewish and non-Jewish Christians together, right? We know this, that his main focus was to teach and restore people's thoughts back to restoring their relationship with God. And he's laid it out very clearly that Christ is the very righteousness of God. And what he means is that for us as sinners, this is what it means for us to be saved, and this is what it means for us to be righteous. Like Liz mentioned last week, we now see a shift in this section of this letter. And starting in chapter 12, he's shifting to this. Then how must we live? The first part of Romans is, is, is explaining this is what righteousness, this is what it means to be saved, this is what it means to find freedom. And now he's moving into this, where it says, this is how, I, this is how we are to live. And how are we to be living sacrifices, to use our gifts, to edify the church, and how do we, we conduct ourselves in righteousness? Now in chapter 13, Paul turns from the Christian's relationship to other Christians 
and to other individuals to the wider question of how are we to interact with governing authorities and with our neighbors. Now before I dig in, this is a place of tension in particular in the era that we live in. I want to say that. There are some things in here, there are some people that are listening to here that might be really active in politics. And there might be some people that are like, I do not care about politics at all. That's like the last conversation that they want to have. But we're going to jump in here because Romans, it's going to talk about this. It's going to teach, and I'm going to teach this as best I can from the word of God. And as one who is operating and functioning out of this, the shepherding leader, leadership gift that I have been uh, given for this season of Redeem. And, cons- and I consider the body redeemed, and I consider that God's word, and this is the best that I can do in teaching uh, God what God is saying in these particular passages. Like many places in Paul's letter, and this is a really good thing, you're going to say that we're you're going to see that we're going to be pulled into wrestling with some tension. It's okay. That's a good thing. Matter of fact, I was actually having a conversation with my buddy Rabbi Brent. Many of you know him. And uh, he was saying that wrestling is the end goal in a lot of ways with the Bible. But the biggest problem is that people have to start reading it first. We have to, people have to read the word, then they have to study the word, and then they begin to wrestle with the word. And wrestling with the world, it, word is good because that's what begins to change us to look more like Christ. And so today, we're going to spend some time in tension and some wrestling, and that's a good thing. You know, there, there will be tension in this talk. And there may be some things that I don't say that you may wish that I may say. There may be some things that maybe you have a challenge on or you want to talk further about. And that's totally okay. Okay, it's good to talk afterwards. But in Romans 13, Paul's big idea is a touchy subject. Submission to authority. This is a big one. Submission, honor, and respect are not an easy thing, especially in today's day. And in this letter, Paul is providing challenging principles and blunt answers to how Christians are to live amongst a government that isn't necessarily Christian. And so we see that. It's important to note that the people that Paul is writing to was nothing like the elected democracy that we currently are experiencing today. The people who he is writing to would not have had an understanding of democracy. So there is some nuance within this talk. It's also important to point out that Paul is not giving us a discussion or a playbook of church and state in relations in their relationship in this section of the Bible. Paul is not laying out specific answers to the challenge of the church and the state that we have been trying to sort out for centuries. I don't know if I get an amen on that. But Paul is writing to Christian believers and how they are to live as citizens in his or her country. You can wear the American hat in here, but this is true of anywhere. This is true of Ugandans or Colombians or, uh, or, or Ukrainians or Euro- Europeans in general. We have an American hat that we're going to look through this lens at, of course. But what he's saying is this, is, this could be any country. And Paul is going to show us four things. Number one, how the Christian is to view authority both positively and negatively. Two, he'll show us our responsibility to authorities. Three, he's going to talk about the state's responsibility to citizens. And four, 
how we as Christians are to be a member of society. It's a really important topic, so let's jump right in. Romans 13, 1 through 5. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have, have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror, terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Paul structures the Greek here that it's clear that it's governing authorities. You know, there is no working around that. I have studied this and it is about the government. And so what we see is that Paul is going to make this verse challenging for us. And that's, that's okay. But Paul's rationale for honor and respect has nothing to do with the ruler's godliness or their competence or other qualifications. Instead, he's calling us to submission to authority that is grounded in God's authority. You know, Paul wrote this probably in 50 AD, in, in the mid-50s AD. And so what we know is that Claudius was the emperor uh, before that. And as you remember, that's because there were Jewish Christians and there were, and, there, uh, and there were Gentile Christians that Paul's writing to. Well, with Claudius, he had kicked all the Jews out. And so what we see is that after Claudius', Claudius death, Jews and Jewish Christians started returning back to Rome. And so it's clear that it's after Claudius. So we are in Nero's uh, reign as the emperor of Rome. And Nero was the adopted son and he was uh, now in power. And Nero was one of the most infamous and brutal men who had ever lived. You know, during his rule, he murdered his, his own wife, I mean his first wife, his own mother, and his second wife. And so he was a bad dude. He also burnt down, uh, had a great fire of Rome in 64 AD so that he could rebuild back the city and the palace in his image. So he did not care about being ruthless. He's also known for persecuting Christians. And so in Paul's day, leaders were most often given their position because of hereditary uh, lineage. That's what we know. Merit and qualifications often had little to do with it. And I'm sure that at times we think, in our government as well, uh, that, that merit and qualifications have little to do with it as well about our leaders, but that's true of this time in particular. So I want you to note, if there was ever a time to beg for a special exemption from honor and respect of one's rulers and their, because of their ungodliness and their incompetence, it would have been in Paul's day when he's writing this letter. Look, we can relate to it at the same time. We may not like who won the elections locally or, or, or on a national level. But we, like Paul, we must put our trust in this belief, this simple but profound belief that God is sovereign. And I want to admit it, that I struggle with this too. I'm right there with you. 
Now, one of the important arguments that brings clarity is that Paul is saying God designed human society for a purpose. And so Paul is saying that governments, no matter how much we do not like it, are actually needed to hold people accountable to live in a way that makes it possible for people to live together. You would think that as adults, we could all just live together. But really when it comes down to it, we have to have systems and we have to have structure and we have to have laws and we have to have rules because quite simply, we do not work well together. And so Paul is making it clear in verse three and four that he's describing those who exercise uh, their authority appropriately. Those who punish evil and reward good. Once we understand the divine intention for these institutions and for these authorities laid out here in Romans 13, we now have a basis for reconciling the apparent contradiction that we may see between submitting to God's ordained authorities while still honoring God. We see this happening right now, and I think there's a struggle for Christians in 2022. I think this might help ease some of the tension. Paul is saying that without the threat of punishment, human self-interest would make society impossible. And so for this reason, we see that human government is why a wise one that God has directed. It brings order and structure to our societies. Now let's dig in deeper. The first line again. At first reading, Paul seems to be putting the requirement of submission in absolute terms. But as we look at other places in the Bible, and we see it in different places in Romans 13, we see more clearly that it isn't just absolute. Let's read verse 7. Romans 13, 7. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now, most scholars believe that Paul is clearly referencing Jesus in Matthew 22, when Jesus said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. You know, during this time when Jesus said this, the Pharisees uh, and Jews who were partisan to Herod and his ways were opposed to Jesus and came to Jesus and tried to trick him. In Matthew 22, 17, it says, tell us then what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and God what is God. Paul is leaning back on Jesus, who is saying that even in Roman days, the civil government has limited authority. In those days, the king or the emperor thought of themselves as a deity, as a god. And so Jesus is putting the government in its right place. He's saying, okay, pay taxes, that's fine, but no to paying Caesar worship. No unqualified obedience. We're living in a day and age on both sides where people may be beginning to worship politics and politicians and we have to be careful Jesus and Paul are very big on this and it's because we can miss our mission what it's not saying is we're not to be civically involved 
That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that we don't stand up for godly things. It's, but our call is this, to stand up for things that matter to God, but to be above reproach at the same time. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If honor, then honor. If respect, then respect. How do we do this? You know, I, I'll share the story longer, but my dad and I, we don't really have a relationship. He's done some things and we've had a hard time, but I'm still biblically called to honor and respect my dad. How do I do that? I, I have set rules and, and, and have set principles in my life where I will never call my dad names. I will never speak disrespectfully of him. I will never gossip about him. I can't go along with a lot and we don't have a close relationship, but I still honor him while standing up for biblical principles. And I know that many of us, we listen to political commentator, commentators, right? And we may agree with what they have and what they are saying. Many of them have helped shape our opinions and our minds around important topics. But I love what uh, Mike Winger, he's a podcaster, and he was asked, do we, does he listen to a particular political commentator? And he, and he said, yes, I do. And he said, hey, that, that person has helped me, and particularly when there are things happening in politics that I don't understand, shape my opinions, and I align with him in a lot of areas, and he's helped me shape uh, what I'm supposed to think about a topic. But he was very clear to be very, be very uh, careful as Christians because sometimes we can start taking on the identity of the political commentators and not of Christ. And they might use name calling and sarcasm and anger. They are getting paid to do that. They are getting paid to stir up those emotions in you and me. And we can begin to not look very Christ-like when it comes to politics. And so we can stand up, we can call out sins, we can vote, we can advocate, of course, but we can also be honorable and respectful. And it really does matter. In a world that is on the verge of completely losing it or maybe has already lost it, we can be honoring and respectful. We now live in a world where I have to, on both ends of the spectrum, I have had to teach my seven-year-old what the F word is. Now I've done it tastefully because there are so many bumper stickers and flags that say F and the political opponent. It's amazing. We live in a world that does not show honor and respect and our kids are seeing it and our kids are confused. They don't understand. Is that how they're supposed to talk? Is that how they're supposed to behave? Honor and respect is so important. So what we do it, 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 no matter if our, our governing authorities are living in a not godly way or not, we can make a difference. We can stand up for what matters, for godly things. Ungodly ways, ways not the ways that we are wanting because of self-interest. And that's the big deal. We want to be about holding up godly things, not our self-interest. And we want to do it with respect. I know that's a fine line. Of course, there's places, there's always places to stand up for what is right. Let's look at the book of Acts, Acts 5. And the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God 
rather than human beings. Paul was announcing to the Sanhedrin, the governing authority at the time, that they must not, they must disobey in stopping preaching the gospel. We see here that if the authorities command what God forbids or what God commands, then we need to stand up and we need to speak up. We see this in the book of Daniel. Daniel 3, uh, verse 1 and 2. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Now, this is a head-scratcher when you look at Romans 13. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah and Daniel were alive at the same time. He prophesied that King Nebuchadnezzar was a servant of God, even though he's known as a bad man. Give them a message for their masters and say, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Tell this to your masters. With my great power and outstretched arms, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are in it, and I give it to anyone I please. Now I will give all your countries into the hands of my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. He then makes sure to go to the king of Judah at the time to tell them the same message and that we are to not listen to false prophets that say that they are not to follow King Nebuchadnezzar. I gave the same message to Zedekiah, king of Judah. I said, bow your neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon. Serve him and his people and you will live. Why will you and your people die by the sword, famine and plague with which the Lord has threatened any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Do not listen to the words of the prophets who say to you, you will not serve the king of Babylon, for they are prophesying lies to you. So we see, now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego enter the story, and they are under King Nebuchadnezzar's rule. And the king, who God put into power, has built this huge image. And what does he do? He calls all the governing authorities, you saw it, together to get them to make sure that they are making everyone do this order. Daniel 3, continue. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, that is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Skip down to verse 12. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They never serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I laid out? Skip down to verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, 
King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we were thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I believe that this is a perfect example of with honor and respect, they stood up for what they believed in. They stood up for what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Listen to how they stand their ground. They stand up for what is right. They're willing to face the consequences of what standing up for what is right is. And they speak with respect and truth to authority. Of course, you probably know the rest of the story, right? They are thrown in and actually you see a fourth character that many believe is Jesus. They come out and their clothes aren't even burnt. We live in a time right now where at least we aren't going to be thrown into the furnace. But they stood up for what is right. We, we are clearly, with respect and honor, supposed to stand up for what is right. We see this with the Israelites. We're in Egypt. And the Hebrew midwives, right, refused to kill the infant boys as Pharaoh decreed. You know, we see this in World War II. Many Christians hid Jews in defiance of the Nazi government. And we clearly called up, we are clearly called to stand up for what is right. And we have the privilege of living in a democracy where this is encouraged. And I want you to, I want to encourage you to stand up for what is right. There's a lot of crazy going on in Planet Crazy right now. We can make a difference, but we need to do it with honor and respect. So we dig into Paul's writings in Romans 13 and other writings throughout the Bible. And it's clear that we, how we are meant to live. Number one, to honor God above all else, even human institutions. Two, to submit to authority since it's placed there by God. And three, when it's not possible to do both, then expect to suffer for honoring God over human authority. Government as a savior is not the way to approach it. We have one savior and that is Jesus Christ. And we need to be willing to participate in civic life like never before. And I believe that Romans 13 is an invitation for Christians to participate in public life and citizenship. And I believe that there is a clear call to do it with respect and honor when it's due. And I want to end here because I don't want to miss this. Paul continues in, in Romans 13. And after talking about governing authority, he's going to remind us of our first and most important mission for us to get out into our neighborhoods. Romans 13, 8-10, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summoned up, summed up in one command, Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Believers, Paul continues with the biblical citizenship and he reminds us that God's law is, the, is God's guideline on how we are to do this. Simply love one another. How we are to do good for those around us. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't covet. It's all summed up into one rule. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is really just following the law. That is simply what it is. The obedient way of living is the loving way of living. And the loving way of living is the obedient way of living. We are to obey God's commands and it all starts with loving others above ourselves. Now keep in mind that our loving is to fulfill the law. Sometimes showing love is also speaking truth. And so we see that showing love is not always the comfortable way of living. Sometimes we can hide behind it. We can read this and we say, it's all about love. It's all about love. I'm living the love loving way. But it can be translated into if we say we are just to love people, we won't have to say or do anything hard. If you're loving people, you will have to do and say things that are hard. But we instead speak truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head that is Christ. Church, Romans 13 is full of tensions for believers. We are to stand up for what's right with respect and honor. We are to stand up for what's right with love at the same time. We are to remember this in 2022. We must avoid the two extremes. We are not to huddle up as believers and hold this non-Christian society out there and do nothing for them and not love them and not serve them and not do good, good or be engaged in any way. Nor are we to love the society so much that we begin to be compromised in obeying other standards other than God's standards. And that's the tension that we find ourselves in. We are called to love the city. We don't just shut ourselves off from society, nor do we conform, conform to it. But we look differently than it, and that's so important. We as a Christian community are supposed to look different than the rest of the world. And how do we do that in a world that's gone crazy? We stand up for what's right, and with honor and respect and love. This was a long one, but let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have put us in this time, in this place, in this season for a reason. Lord, thank you that you call us to honor and respect and love. Lord, help us to do that more. Lord, help us to stand up for what's right. Help us to be bold, to speak truth, and when, it's need to be, when truth needs to be spoken. And Lord, help us to understand what it means to do that in love and honor and respect. Thank you, Lord, that you are building us up to be a body that looks different than the rest of the world. Give us courage and strength to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.